mother barely 20 out there on her own a teenage boy in prison before he's even grown the illness of a loved one a widow no one calls but there is one solution an answer for it all there is power in the name of jesus there is hope there is strength and victory to claim there's healing in his holy presence there is power in his name a nation needing mercy fighting for her life a church that needs revival a broken man and wife but in the name of Jesus, chains of bondage fall. Prayers are heard and answered when God's children call. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is hope, there is strength, and victory to claim. There is healing in His holy presence. There is power in His name. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is hope, there is strength and victory to claim. There's healing in His holy presence. There is power in His name. There is power in His name. That's a good song, amen? What a tremendous message to that one, amen? Well, let's take our Bibles, turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21. We're going to begin reading in verse 7, we're going to read through verse 10, then we're going to take a little bit of time and kind of go back through the book of Acts a little bit and kind of lay some groundwork, and then we're going to ultimately end up asking ourselves a, a question, and we're going to... Uh, well, I guess maybe not even ask a question. We're just going to look at some lessons that Philip's life teaches us today. Some lessons, I guess, that his life teaches us. Acts chapter 21, verse 7. Last week, of course, during the course of the message, we brought up Philip and we talked about his tremendous ministry to the Samaritans. And again, we're not in a series, but as I read through Acts a little bit more again this week, I ran into this passage and it kind of, I don't know, I just felt like, wow, this is really good. Let's go ahead and see what God will do here. And I think it'll be a help to you. I know it was to me. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 21, verse 7. Uh, we see here, the Bible tells us, and when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. 
The next day, we that were of Paul's company departed, came to Caesarea. We entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, when we look at this passage, I am drawn to the name Philip. That name, Philip. Even in the very passage, we're told where we are first introduced to Philip. Matter of fact, take your Bible, if you would, turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 6. This is the first time we note this particular Philip in the Bible. In Acts, chapter 6, of course, we're going to note that the church, of course, in Jerusalem is growing. The needs are multiplying. And notice the solution to one of their problems in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. The Bible says, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there rose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, Is it not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables? Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now again, here in this particular passage, we learn about Philip. We, we are introduced to Philip. Philip, who in many cases, many would say, well, this is the, these are the first deacons of the church. Now again, some would debate that, whether or not they're truly what we would call deacons or not, but I don't have a problem. I'm not going to get into a you know, splitting hairs over that issue. But let's just assume then for the sake of argument and for the sake of the message that he is one of the first deacons. And again, I have no problem with that per se, so I'm not going to worry about it. He's a deacon then, one of the first deacons of the church, the early church. Understand that the church at this point is growing by leaps and bounds. May I mention one more thing about deacons? If this indeed is appointing to a deacon, then may I say that the church is probably in the thousands by now, and notice how many deacons were elected or how many deacons were sought out? Seven. I think it's important because you can go to a church with 100 people that has five deacons. What in the world do five deacons in a church of 100 do? I think we need to be very careful with how we describe and how we deal with deacons, and I don't have time to go into it, but I think it's important that we understand their role and their responsibilities in the church. And in our passage, we are introduced to their role and responsibility, of which we'll touch on, but we will not interject and deal with in any in-depth manner. Now, again, what we do want to focus on is Philip, however. Philip is one of these first men that are chosen now. Notice his character and his reputation in verse 3. The Bible tells us that he, he, they said, pick out or choose men of honest report. That means he was an honest man then. That meant you could count on him to keep his word. That meant that this man, if he said he was going to do something, he did it. He was a man of honest report. He was a man that could be counted on to keep his word. Not only that, but we note that men are full of the Holy Ghost. There is a difference between somebody that attends a church 
or somebody that tries to do some good things along the way than somebody that's actually filled with the Spirit of God and, and, and is allowing the Holy Spirit to have control of their life. There's a difference between just simply being saved and indwelt and being saved and being filled. There is a difference. One, on one hand, we allow, we call on Christ and he comes in and dwells us in the person of the Holy Ghost. The other one is allowing the Holy Ghost to have preeminence and priority in our life, totally yielded and submitted and surrendered to his leadership. So there's a difference there. Not only that, but this man is not only an honest man, a spirit-filled man, but he is a man of great wisdom. The Bible says that you search out some men that have wisdom. Applying biblical truths in a proper manner. This man had great wisdom. So he's an honest man. He's a spirit-filled man. He's a man of great wisdom. He was an exceptional Christian, this Philip was. He had submitted himself to both God and man. He was a testimony of the grace of God. His faith and practice in life provided a tremendous example for others to follow even. And by the way, that position that he was elected to was one of service. He was to minister to the needs of the widows who no longer had husbands. And may I say, probably more than likely, who had no children there to care for them. I think that's an important point as well. We are to raise our children to take care of us in our elder age. It is not the church's job to care for everybody that doesn't have anybody. We need to work at raising our families to meet our needs in our old age. That's one of the reasons why they had adoption in the Old Testament, so that you could adopt a child to literally bury you when you died. So you could adopt a child to care for you in your old age. It's important that we understand that. There are situations, unfortunately, in our world today where children are abandoning their parents. What a sad situation that is. And we need to do our best as believers to train up our children, not only in biblical manners, but it's in the biblical process of caring for their parents. But in this case, there are those who had no one to care for them. No one. And so they said, listen, is it really the responsibility of the pastor? Should he be burdened down with going out and shoveling the driveway when there's snow on the ground? Should he be burdened down with going and getting groceries for this person who can't get out of their house? Should he be burdened down with fixing a chair that broke in the kitchen? Should he be burdened down with all of those details and all of those physical needs in the lives of a person in the church? And they said, absolutely not. They need to keep their nose in the Bible. They need to keep their focus on the heaven. They need to continue to do the work of the ministry. Let's go ahead and appoint seven that will go out and take care of those physical needs. A servant. This is the man that we read about in chapter six of the book of Acts. Philip, who was selfless. Philip, who was unselfish in every aspect of his life. Philip, who was willing to give himself, not only to God, but to others. He was one of the original deacons. Well, you know, the next time we see Philip, we see him over in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Let's turn over there, Acts chapter 8. So here he is being chosen out among seven of, of the whole church, seven of the men. And here he's being elected and chosen, an honest man, a spirit-filled man, a man of great wisdom. Now the next time we see him, it says in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 5, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preach Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto the things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Philip, we now find, is holding a revival in Samaria. 
He is preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. He is seeing great results and people are being saved and lives are being changed. God is doing a miracle in his life and in his ministry. And he's doing a miracle in the lives of others. He preaches powerfully, has a successful revival. However, in verse 12, it says, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. He's seeing results, yes, but hold on. In the midst of that great revival, in the midst of all those salvations and baptisms, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. All of a sudden, Philip is being commanded and, and told to go out into the desert. But hold on, I'm, I'm in the midst of a revival. Hold on, I'm in the midst of seeing lives changed and transformed. You've used me as a conduit of your power, God. You certainly want me to remain here. No, go out into the desert. And Philip says, yes, sir. There, of course, he sees a chariot. And in it was an Ethiopian who was returning from Jerusalem. And in his hand was a parchment of the book of Isaiah. He goes close to it. He's ordered to go to, toward that chariot. And there he finds himself astride with the chariot. And the man happens to be in that passage in Isaiah 53. More than likely, we note chapter 53, verse 4. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And the man, Ethiopian says, says, he says, do you know what you're reading? Do you know where, uh, how, how can I know? How can I know except some man show me? I mean, is, he the, the, is the prophet talking about himself or another man? And the Bible tells us that he began to preach unto him Jesus. Jesus. And we read in chapter 8, verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same verse and preached unto him, Jesus. And they went on their way. They came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He didn't just say, I believe you ought to go to church. I believe you ought to read the Bible. I believe you ought to be a good man or a good woman. No, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You got to believe in Jesus. And he did. And so down into the water they go. And the Bible tells us that as he raises him up and he's baptized, all of a sudden, uh, before it's over with, not long after, the eunuch looks around and where is Philip at? In verse 39 of chapter 8, we, we read this passage there. He says, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. I don't know, that sounds like a Star Trek moment. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. I mean, on one minute he's there, and the next minute, boom. I don't know if that's exactly how it happened. I wasn't there, but it sure seems to me that that eunuch came up out of that water. He got to looking around, and he said, Hey, where's Philip at? I don't see him anywhere. But in verse 40, we see the Bible continues and says, but Philip was found at Azotus. 
Azotus was the name of an old Philistine city by the name of Ashdod. That city lied about 20 miles north of Gaza, and it stated that, that, that that's where Philip preached. He could be found preaching there in this city, Azotus or Ashdod as it used to be called. But then he continues up the coastline. And he's preaching at these little cities and villages and he's sharing the gospel. He's preaching Jesus to people. So there he is in that wilderness and now he's at Azotus and he's preaching and then he takes off and he goes to the next city and the next city and the next town and the next village and the next city all the way up the coast until ultimately the Bible tells us he arrives at Caesarea. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Caesarea had been built by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus. It was the capital of all Roman administration for Palestine, and it was a Gentile city, by the way. By the way, it is the exact and same city that we will then find Cornelius. If you remember Cornelius, he would ultimately be the one who God would send Peter to And Peter would preach the word of God to Cornelius and his household. And Cornelius would be saved. I think it's interesting to note that although Philip is not being used to lead Cornelius to Christ, he is already planted in that city. He's already there to continue the work that now has begun in the house of Cornelius i got to believe he had some part, played some role somehow in the spread of the gospel there in Caesarea without a doubt. As a matter of fact, we found in our text verses that he was an evangelist. So it seems then that Philip had settled down in Caesarea. After being a deacon in the church at Jerusalem, going out into the wilderness and ultimately sharing, I mean, going down to Samaria and leading a tremendous revival amongst those Samaritans. He's then told to go out into the wilderness where there and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch who it is believed carried the gospel into Africa. And now he travels up the coastline and he lands in Caesarea. And the next time we see him in Caesarea... Chapter 21, it's been 20 years now. Turn to Acts 21 if you're not there. We're back at our text again now, verse 8. Again, I mean, he is gone now from traveling up the coastline, lands in Caesarea, and now 20 years later we find Philip still in Caesarea. 21.8, and the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Again, he's identified as an evangelist. Boy, the work that he was doing, we can certainly look at it and probably say, boy, that's pretty close to even what we would consider a missionary work. And you wouldn't be wrong with that either. The Bible also points out and goes on to say in chapter 21 that this Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, also had four daughters that were virgins, and they prophesied. 
they did prophesy. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to discuss that for a moment because that could be misunderstood. It could even lead to some real bad doctrine. Again, it has to be understood in Jewish context. It has to be understood in light of the transitional nature of that particular portion of history. See, there is a transition that's taking place in the book of Acts. And may I say that that transition that's taking place, we are going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We are going from the law to grace. We are going from Israel to the church. And we are transitioning from national salvation, Israel, to individual salvation. There's a major transition that takes place in the beginning of the book of Acts to the time we arrive toward chapter 21, 22, and all the way to the end. There is a transition that's taking place, and that transition must be understood or we will not rightly divide the scriptures. And if we fail to rightly divide the scriptures, then every verse gets very convoluted and confusing, and it can lead us to false doctrine. Now, the prophecies concerning Israel in the last days had been put into motion, making way for Messiah. We understand that. We go back to Isaiah and Ezekiel and other prophets, and we realize they were pointing to the day when Christ would come and ultimately rule and reign on the earth on the throne of David. We see that. We understand that. But Israel rejected Jesus Christ. God had placed in motion those prophecies. Things were moving in the right direction. They were setting up and being established for Christ to do exactly what had been prophesied to rule and reign. However, Israel rejected them. We see that last rejection in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, who is ultimately martyred, because it will be chapter 8 that we see Philip now going down to the Samaritans who are half Jew and half Gentile in, in their, their makeup. And then we see, ultimately, chapter 9, we see Paul the Apostle, who is born again on the road to Damascus, and he will become the Apostle to the Gentile. We see transition taking place here, early on in the book of Acts. The Jew is receiving the gospel exclusively, to ultimately now the Samaritan is receiving the gospel, to before it's all said and done, now the Gentile's receiving the gospel. A transition taking place. God dealing with Israel in the Old Testament. God dealing with the church. God dealing with Israel under law. God dealing with every individual under grace. We see a transition, and it's important to understand that. It was prophesied that young men and young women would prophesy when Christ would come and ultimately establish his kingdom. Notice, if you would, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Don't turn there. Let me read it. We might be a while. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That is a prophecy. By the way, Peter at the day of Pentecost re re repeats that prophecy. So it was not unusual at that moment. It would be like the apostles. Remember, they were healing people and doing great miracles. Can I tell you that that was all a result of God's dealing with the Jew in light of Messiah and ultimately their elevation in the world and him being placed on the throne of David but when the Jew rejected Jesus Christ transition took place we went from dealing with the Jew to the Gentile and may I say the Jew requires a sign but not the Gentile therefore there are no signs anymore 
There are no healings that have to take place for you to believe. You don't have to see people raised from the dead anymore. You don't have to have people uh, doing all those miracles. I mean, you know, healed this and healed that and all of that. It doesn't have to happen. Why? Because we're no longer dealing with the Jew now. Not that Jews can't be saved, but they are saved the same way you and I, a Gentile, are. Everyone's saved the same now. By grace through faith. You, if you wanted the favor of God in your life, you had to become a Jew and part of Israel in the day. You don't have to do that now. You're part of the body of Christ. So a transition took place. Again, by the time we reach the, book, uh, the end of the book of Acts, the Pauline epistles are complete, and the doctrine that governs the New Testament church has now been instituted. It's been put into motion and into place. Paul's already written to the Corinthians that it was the Holy Spirit's mind that women would be silent in the church in 1 Corinthians 14. And he even goes on to further explain that in chapter 2 of Timothy in his letter to Timothy. Listen again, a transition had taken place. Do not allow yourself to fall prey. One verse in the Bible defines New Testament Christianity. Oh, I guess it's all right for women to, to pastor churches. I guess it's all right for healings to take place. I guess all of that stuff is part of New Testament Christianity. It's not because there was a transition that took place here at the beginning when Christ was still hopefully going to take his place on the throne and God was still dealing with Israel to now he is dealing with the Gentile and he's winning the world by grace through faith. And the epistles now rule as far as their doctrine is concerned, as far as our doctrine is concerned. Again, I understand someone says, well, I don't get all that. That's okay. I know I threw a bunch at you. You just, you just got a whole semester of the book of Acts in about 10 minutes. So what do we learn from Philip's life then? I mean, we watched him from the time, Acts chapter 6, just being chosen out from among the church as one of the first deacons. Boy, he had character. And he had a wonderful reputation. And then we see God sending him to Samaria where he's preaching a tremendous revival. He's then sent out into the wilderness where we see him dealing with the Ethiopian and then up the coast, he lands in Caesarea, and 20 years now have passed. And Paul the Apostle, along with his caravan of men and women, land in Caesarea. And the Bible tells us, chapter 21, verse 7, And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we were of Paul's company, uh, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days. Man, I mean, they stopped in and Philip opened his arms and said, come on in. So good to see you, brothers and sisters. And that's where we find ourselves. What do we learn from this passage? I mean, what are just some simple lessons that we can learn from the life of Philip that I think will benefit us? I've got a few minutes. Let me go ahead and share three things with you very quickly. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for this time together. 
We ask, Lord, you'd speak to us. May you, Father, drive home these simple truths. Father, the truth is it probably won't be anything that no one's heard before. It's pretty basic, pretty simple. But, Lord, it's not the complicated things that trip us up in Christianity. It's the simple things. Help us, Father, to be obedient in the simple things, to just follow you or simply follow you. We'll thank you. We'll praise you. Now meet our needs. And, Lord, if there be any without Jesus Christ, they need him as Savior. Convict them of their sin and show them the need for Jesus. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, what do we learn? Well, here's the first thing. I, I believe that we need to learn to stay in the game. To stay in the game. Man, I mean, after 20 years, Philip is still in the game. I mean, he began with a bang. I mean, can you imagine that? He goes into Samaria. First, he's chosen among all the thousands, potentially, of of men. And here he is chosen of all those men, one of the seven. And then he finds, I mean, he's on the fast track to success. And he's out there preaching a revival, and God is blessing it beyond imagination. I mean, his ministry just blew up. It started with a bang. After we read about him with the Ethiopian eunuch and that he settles down in Caesarea, I don't know that I read anything more about Philip until chapter 21. But I do know one thing, he's still in the game. I mean, he's still serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still working on behalf of Jesus. I mean, he's not given up on preaching the gospel. He hasn't thrown in the towel. He's still at the work and he's doing it with all his spit and vinegar. He's been faithful. I wonder, will you still be in the game after 20 years? Will I be in the game after 20 years? You say, I probably won't even be here. If you are, will you still be in the game? Well, I won't be able to do what I used to do. I'd be an old man. I'd be an old woman by then. Yeah, but will you be doing all you can do? You know, how many times we find ourselves in the Christian life taking a back seat and saying, well, it's time for the young people to step up. I've already done all my time. And here we are sitting around doing nothing. And everyone's dying and going to hell around us and there's still work to be done. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Philip says, you know what, I don't care. I was super popular. I mean, people were talking about me, I'm sure. Man, word was getting back to Jerusalem that a great revival was taking place in Samaria. I'm sure that people followed my ministry for a while. But then things just kind of died down here in Caesarea. Oh, I'm still evangelizing. I'm still preaching the gospel. But it's not like I'm the main focal point anymore. I'm just another servant. And can I tell you, he learned that servitude very well over in the book of Acts chapter 6 when he as a deacon served those ladies there that had no no one and nothing. They couldn't give him anything. They couldn't do anything but say, oh, thank you, Philip. Thank you for meeting my need. Thank you. I'd go hungry if it wasn't for you, Philip. And he just said, I'm serving the Lord, not for kudos, not for a pat on the back. I'm serving Jesus. He stayed in the game. All those years, he stayed in the game. Boy, how easy it is to get out of the game. The Apostle Paul over there in the 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. 
Can I tell you to this point in Philip's life, 20 years after the great revival, 20 years after leading an Ethiopian to Christ who would take the gospel to Africa, 20 years after going up the coast of, of, of Israel and then ultimately landing in Caesarea, can I tell you that after 20 years he's still in the game? And he could say, I fought a good fight to this point. He may not be able to say, I finished my course yet, but he could say, I have kept the faith. But you know what? By contrast, there were others that failed to remain faithful. Do you know, just a few verses down from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, in verse 10, we are told of a Christian who failed to keep the faith. The Bible says, For Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. I don't know about you, but I got to believe that the Apostle Paul's heart broke as he remembered days back when Demas was faithful to the Lord, as he remembered how he served Jesus Christ and how he went out and witnessed and told people about the resurrected Savior. And now here he is, these years later, pointing back to Demas and saying, Demas hath forsaken me. Why, Demas? Why did you forsake him? Because I love this present world. I love it. You know, when it's all said and done, the difference between you still being in the race and in the battle and in the game 20 years from now will be who you really love the most. Who I love the most. That's really the distinction. Demas, Demas forsook not only Paul, but he forsook the ministry. He turned his back on truth and righteousness in that regard, having loved this present world. Stay in the game. Stay in the game. What else do we learn? Number two, raise your children for God. By the time we reach verse 9 of our chapter, it's speaking about Philip's four daughters who were virgins. That means they were unmarried. And they prophesied. He had instilled his values. He had instilled his priorities into the life of his children. See, their faith was reflect, a reflection of dad's faith. They weren't bitter toward the ministry, but rather better for having been a part of it. They had established their own faith and their own service and weren't simply riding on the coattails of daddy anymore. Can I tell you the great challenge amongst us as parents and even grandparents today is somehow instilling faith in Jesus Christ into our children to the point where it's no longer our faith, it's their faith. Man, I mean to tell you, you can do everything you can possibly do to try to instill this faith. You can, you need, and you need to, and so do I. And that's the whole point of, the, of this particular point in the message. But you have to instill these things into their lives. Ultimately, we can take them so far, and they must make their own decisions. But we are watching generation after generation over the last 20 years of young people who have arrived at a place where they can make their own decisions and they make the wrong choice concerning this issue. They have not established themselves in their personal walk with Christ. They haven't established themselves in their service for Christ. They're still 
traveling on daddy and mama's coattails. And my friend, let me tell you, if Christianity is going to continue, somebody's got to instill Christian character in their kids. And it ain't going to happen out there. It's got to start here. I remember years ago, there was a show called The Simpsons. It was a cartoon. And what I understand is, and I didn't watch it, so I can't say 100%, but what I do know for a fact is that there was a boy on there or a kid named whatever his name was. He was a Simpson. And he was extremely rebellious toward his parents. Do you know how ignorant some Christian parents are? They even allow their kids to watch trash like that. Or they don't know they're watching it. Well, I can't control everything my kid watches. Are you kidding me? If I had a phone in my possession right now, I'd snap it in half. Aren't you about sick up to hear of the access that our children have to the trash in this world? And we say, well, they have to have a phone. I mean, I've got to be able to reach them. Got to be able to reach them. Oh, yeah. And while you're reaching them, every pedophile and every stinking sinner is too. So you don't believe in phones for kids? Here's what I got to say to you. You better be real careful what you're allowing your kid. If your kid has access to the internet, by about the time he's 11 years old, the, bio, the, 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 the uh, statistics tell us he's already involved in pornography. There's over a 50% chance that at the age of 11, he's already been viewing it. You think about what, how, how much, do you really want access that bad to him that you're willing to give them access to him? You say, did you preach like this in the morning? No, I didn't bring this up one bit, but I'm going to tell you, the Holy Spirit of God wants somebody to get it right. And I'm telling you what, your little seven-year-old does not need a phone. Somebody says, you're just old. You don't, you're not with it. You don't understand how it works. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm old. Yeah. Compared to you, I'm old. Compared to most of these people in here, I'm a youngster. Look at them. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy the Bible says in you fathers provoke not your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord you know spiritual education of a child that was extremely emphasized it was so important in the Old Testament Israel was to keep the feast of the Passover what, what for? a number of reasons but one of the main reasons was so their children would ultimately ask hey what, what, what's that meant for. I mean, what's that feast about? And the parents could then begin to remind them of their spiritual heritage. Not only that, but they were required, parents were, to put Bible verses on their doorposts of their homes, keeping the Word of God visible and present in the lives of their kids. I mean, they turned, they went in the house, oh wow, there's a scripture. Oh wow, there's another one. As they leave, they're, they're walking out the door, there's a scripture. <laughs> They come back home after whatever they've done, and guess what? Out there on the doorpost is another scripture. I'm reminded continually as a young person that God's word is important in this house and that it has authority in our lives. I'm telling you, we have got to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Someone says, well, so if I just bring them to church, I'm guaranteed. Oh, you're not guaranteed enough in just bringing them to church. No, 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 no. No. The truth is, it's more important what takes place outside of the walls of this church in your life than what takes place inside the walls of this church. 
Can I tell you, you can be teaching and going soul winning and involved in the ministry here, but if your life isn't aligned in those areas over here, outside of church, both at your workplace, your home, your family, my friend, that is inconsistency, that is hypocrisy, and that is going to drive your child away from God instead of toward God. I'm just saying, let's raise our children for God. Hey, you can pour your best into your child, and ultimately they're going to get to a place in their life where they're going to make their own decisions. But I guarantee you, they don't have a chance if we don't raise them for God. Number three, and last. Stay in the game, raise your children for God. What else do we learn from this man of God? Use your God-given resources for the ministry. I mean, you think about these men showing up in town, these maybe even some ladies that were following and meeting needs along the way and helping them with their food and the prep and enabling them to do the ministry full go. Listen, let me ask you, there's a good chance there was a good group of people. It's possible that he literally kept not only one, two, or three, but maybe four or five people, maybe even more in his home. Philip sees old Paul the Apostle and others that are with him. He says, hey, brothers and sisters, come on in. Make yourself at home. We're all family here. You know who was watching all that? His children. They saw how unselfish dad and mom were. They saw how selfless they were with the things that they had, how they gave it all to the Lord, not just not just their finances, not just their, their possessions, but themselves. They watched the attitude that they had toward the men and women of God. They saw what their spirit was toward others that were in Christ. They recognized how they felt about the ministry and how their life aligned itself with the word of God and how they were, I mean, just true testimonies of Jesus' grace. Use your God-given resources for your ministry, for the ministry. When we get selfish in that area, not only our time, our effort, but our treasures as well, let me tell you, it is reflected in our attitudes and it ultimately shows up in our children. By the way, I've told the story and I'm not going to go into detail, but I can promise you this. I learned to love football because my dad loved football. I went to bed with a football in my bed for years. I went to sleep with that football. I woke up with that football. And I was probably the greatest peewee player ever to play in the history of my mind. <laughs> I love football. I still love football. I may not watch it this year because of other trash that's taken place. But I'm just telling you, I love football, but I don't love it more than I love right. Amen. That was extra. That, that was free, I should say. That didn't even cost you anything. But I learned to love football because of that man. Can I tell you what? What are we going to teach our children to love? I mean to love. What can we learn from Philip's life? Well, stay in the game. Raise your children for God. Use your God-given resources for the ministry. 
And if I boil it all down, I guess, if I really wanted to just kind of end this with one kind of thought behind it, I'd say a good start's important. However, a strong finish is priceless. Nobody would care about Philip if he didn't remain faithful. Oh, they may have written about him early on in the book of Acts, but we'd have never read about him again if he wouldn't have been faithful. Can I tell you that the Lord is writing a book and he's keeping record as well? Make sure that you're not only saved, but make sure you're still in the game. Don't get distracted. Don't allow the devil to turn your attention away from God and put it on the world. See, the old I used to doesn't impress anyone, does it? Don't lower your sword. Hold it high. Raise the banner. Stay in the game. And you won't regret that. I wonder today, do you know Christ is your Savior? You know, the world's going nowhere. And they're going there fast. I'm not saying there's not good things in the world that we can enjoy. God has placed so many wonderful things in our grasp, and we thank the Lord for those things. And I don't go out into the world every day going, man, this world stinks, this world's the worst. I don't do that. Every good gift cometh down from the Father of lights. I am extremely pleased with the blessings God has bestowed. And can I tell you, there's a lot of wonderful people out in the world right now. So there's a lot of good things out there and too many times we're focused on the bad and it just sours our attitude toward the world and the place we live. God doesn't want us to be critical and cynical all the time. He wants us to be positive and upbeat because there's hope in the believer's life. We just, we have something to hope for and it extends well beyond today in the present. Do you know Christ is your Savior? I don't care if you just got a new job. You may lose that one, but I can tell you one thing. You'll never lose your reservation in heaven, and you can always be guaranteed that you'll spend an eternity with the Lord in a mansion. But you need to trust Christ as your Savior. You're not going to get there on your terms. You've got to get there on His. And 2,000 years ago, He literally sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Man, I want you to have everlasting life. More than that, he wants you to have it. And he wants you to, to just receive and accept him and then allow, Christ will move into your life. He will change your world for the good. As a child of God, stay in the game. 20 years from now, where will you be? Where will I be? If I'm still alive, I want to be in the game. Father, we come to you. Father, we need you. Help us, Lord, to take steps today to be in the game tomorrow. May we not get lazy with, our, with the word of God. May we not get complacent with church, fellowshipping one with another. May we not lose our zeal toward the souls of men and women, boys and girls. May we spend time on our knees seeking your face getting into your presence and enjoying it. Father, I pray, Lord, that you just meet our needs now today. As parents, help us, Father, to train up our children in the way they should go. Help us, Father, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
Help us, Father, to be liberal with our resources, those God-given resources, and support the ministry and support other believers and to meet needs in lives. And Lord, just help us to be in the game. We'll thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head.